0: As we've seen over the last several weeks, when we, when we come to Revelation chapter 11, we're dealing with the last half of the tribulation period. Now, for those of you who've been here for this study, when I use those, that terminology, you're already dialed in. You already, you already know all about that. But for the sake of you folks who, who may be a guest with us today, or maybe you're not acquainted with the terminology of, of the Word of God Let me just explain something just real quickly to you that will help you to be able to put a place to everything that you're going to hear this morning. When we talk about the the tribulation period, what we're talking about is a seven-year period between two very key events. Now, Now listen very carefully. The next event that we are anticipating on this planet biblically is an event that we call the rapture. It is that time when Jesus Christ will come in the clouds and he will bodily snatch away or rapture all of the people that are on this planet who know him. The Bible says in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, bam, they're going to be just out of here. It sounds like a, just an unbelievable thing, and, and if you're left here for it, it, it will be just quite unbelievable to see those kind of things take place before your very eyes. But the Bible says that it's going to happen, and so it it will. And we believe from everything that we've seen thus far in the book of Revelation that that event is very, very soon. But that's the rapture of the church. Then there comes this seven-year period that ends with what is called the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it is that event when Jesus Christ comes back with all of us that know him, come back to this earth, He sits on his throne in Jerusalem to set up what is called the millennial kingdom, where he will rule and reign on this planet for a period of a thousand years. So we've got the rapture that we're anticipating at any moment. We've got the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes back to this planet. But in between those two events is that seven-year period that is called the tribulation, a seven-year period where God's judgment and wrath, is poured out upon this planet. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that there's never been a time like it before it, and he says there'll never be a time like it after it. It is a horrendous period of time. Now, the last three and a half years of that period is what Jesus referred to as the Great Tribulation. Now, there's going to be relative peace at the first part of that Tribulation period, that seven years. The second part of it, is going to be that period called the Great Tribulation. Okay, it's the last half of the seven years, or three and a half years for your study sheet. Or, as the end of verse 2 says, look at Revelation chapter 11. <clears throat> you, you see in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2 that it refers to 42 months. Okay, So this three and a half years, that last half of the Tribulation period, is also referred to as 42 months and what we find as we begin to to look at what the scripture teaches and in fact we don't even have to go past this very passage right here to find out that a biblical month is a month that com- is comprised of 30 days and if you multiply 42 months of 30 days it will give you the figure that's found in the middle of verse 3 1,200 score days, or 1,260 days, okay? Now, I've gone through all of that just to help you to get your bearings here about where we are in Revelation chapter 11. We are dealing with that period of time that is the great tribulation, that second half of, of that seven-year period. And at this point in the tribulation period, John says in verse 1, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. Now, what's interesting is that in this point, at this point in the book of Revelation, uh, up to this point, John has, has only been a spectator of all of the events that have unfolded before his eyes, and he's very carefully and very obediently recorded the things that he has seen. But at this point, John becomes more than a spectator. He becomes the main character of the drama. And he's told to take a reed and measure the temple of God. Now, understand that this is not the, the heavenly temple that he's told to measure here. This is not the same temple that we saw back in, in Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, the the temple that he is told to measure here in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1 is a temple that is on the earth at the midpoint of the tribulation period on the temple mount in the city of Jerusalem you say well how do you know that well we know that because verse 2 says but the court which is without or on the outside of the temple leave out and measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles now watch this And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I guarantee you that no Gentiles will tread the heavenly city for any period of time. The holy city that verse 2 is talking about is that great city that verse 8 is talking about. That city, he says in verse 8, is called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. And if you can't figure out exactly what city that is, I mean, he just flat out tells you you it's that city where our Lord was crucified, in verse 8. It's an earthly temple that he's told to measure here that is found in the city of Jerusalem. And and I've tried to point out in the last two weeks the the significance of what our Lord is actually telling John to do here in in verse 1. Because we've seen that the temple that was located in Jerusalem was utterly destroyed by the roman emperor or roman uh, general titus way back in 70 a.d now folks john did not write the book of revelation until 95 a.d so the temple that was in jerusalem had already by the time that john wrote this had already been destroyed for a period of 25 years so when john was writing this there was no temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem for him to measure. So if that be the case, if he's writing in 95 AD, and there's no temple to measure on the Temple Mount, for John to actually take his measurements at the midway point in the tribulation, obviously, somewhere along the way, that temple is going to need to be rebuilt. And we've looked at other prophecies over the last several weeks, the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel prophecies of Paul and even the Lord Jesus Christ himself that, that show the necessity of the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem by the middle point of the tribulation period. By that point, there is going to be a temple on the Temple Mount. And we've talked about the fact that as recently as, as 80 years ago, now check this out as recent as eighty years ago folks there was not a person on this planet who could have told you how in the world john would ever be able to fulfill this prophecy because not only was there not a temple in jerusalem there was little chance of it i I mean you 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 go back and you we we talked about some of these things let me just try this morning to connect a lot of this stuff together for you the jews when Titus came into Jerusalem in 70 AD and he leveled the temple and he leveled that city, at that point, the prophecy of Daniel or Deuteronomy chapter 28 was fulfilled in that the Jews were scattered to every corner of the earth. That took place in 70 AD. Now, when John is receiving this information about going and measuring the temple here, little did John know that the nation of israel would remain scattered and those jews would be scattered in every corner of the globe for another eighteen hundred and forty eight years in fact the jews it was just a miracle in itself that they were somehow through that in- incredible period of time again eighteen hundred and forty eight years somehow this group of people was able to retain their identity as a people that was a miracle in itself But listen, for the Jews to come back into the homeland and be established as as a nation again, folks, 80 years ago, that was just absolutely unthinkable. Now, now God had prophesied the fact that it was going to happen. He had prophesied it in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 11. He had also prophesied it in Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 21. But it was just so unthinkable and and, and so unimaginable that most Bible scholars 80 or 100 years ago at the turn of the century, most Bible scholars and theologians and, and, and believers in general looked at those prophecies and spiritualized them because there was no way in their minds that they could ever fathom that somehow those prophecies would ever be fulfilled literally. But exactly 100 years ago, something very significant began to take place on this planet. God began to work in the hearts of a small group of Jews who called themselves Zionists. We've talked a little bit about this. The Zionists were a group who simply believed that God somehow would restore to them their homeland. And what they began to do is they began to pray that somehow God would do that for them. And in one of the the most bizarre set of circumstances that you could ever imagine, God began to move to answer that prayer. Now, check this out. In 1914, Austria and Serbia went to war. Now, nations have been going to war all throughout history. But something real significant was going to happen with this war. 1914, Austria and Serbia go to war. By 1917, virtually, the whole world is involved in that war. It's what we call World War I. As a part of the, the military strategy of the Germans, they have put them, themselves and their, their naval forces out in the waters, blocking the ships from South Africa to England, making it impossible for the ships to bring in the nitrates that the the, the, the uh, that britain so desperately needed in order to to make the gunpowder that they needed for their artillery so there's no way for them to get it sir winston churchill contacts a chemist by the name of wiseman and he he tells him about the situation and wiseman invents a synthetic nitrate so that they don't need the nitrates any longer and as a result of that england win and along with her allies wins the war Okay, well, nice little story, and that's real cute and all of that. Well, Wiseman just happened to be a Jew, and, and more than just being a Jew, he was a part of that Zionist movement. The British Parliament is, is so overjoyed at what Wiseman was able to do for them that they say to, to Wiseman, you know, we'd like to, to somehow find a way to express to you the gratitude of our hearts and what you did for us in, in this war. Well... Coincidentally enough, England, through that war, had just taken control of Palestine from the Turks. Wiseman knows about this, and he says, you know, if there's anything that I really want, it's not money, it's it's not wealth or fame, what I really want is I want a national homeland for my people. And in 1917, the Balfour Declaration was signed, opening Palestine to Jewish immigration, and in 1918, I mean, now, now think about this, folks. That was only 80 years ago. In 1918, just just like the final verse of the the, the Hebrew Old Testament says, and of course, the the last verse of their Bible is in our Bible, Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 23. And what that verse tells them in their Bible is get back, get back up. And just like that verse tells them in their Bible, the first Jews in 1918 began to move back into the homeland. Now, folks, you can list all the reasons in the world that you want for why World War I took place on this planet. And we can humanly, we can go through and we can say, yeah, the whole Austria and Serbia gig and yeah, the Germans and the Nazis and we can go through all of that stuff, but folks, from God's perspective, World War I was God getting the land ready for that Jew. World War I ended in 1917. By 1939, just 22 years later, the world had entered into the Second World War, World War II. And, of course, the key figure in that war was a man by the name of what, Adolf Hitler. Hitler. Adolf Hitler is a a type of antichrist if you look at all of the characteristics in the Bible. In fact, his number on his ID card in the Nazi party was 555. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 that the number of the antichrist is 666. And Hitler was the last complete type of antichrist on this planet before the real McCoy gets here real soon. But through Adolf Hitler and his mercilessness to the Jews and exterminating over 6 million of them, the Jews rallied together. And in the whole process, those Jews gained the sympathy of the entire world. And just like God used World War I to get the land ready for the Jew, God used World War II to get the Jew ready for the land. And on May 14th, 1948, May 14, 1948, exactly 30 years after the first Jews had made their way into the homeland. You remember, the first Jews made their way in 1918, after in 1917 the Balfour Declaration was signed, and 30 years later, from that date, 30 years being the biblical age of maturity, a modern miracle took place on this planet, and Israel became a nation once again. You know why Israel became a nation, folks? Because God was moving to fulfill prophecy. That's why. It was not just a, boy, wasn't that an interesting set of circumstances, folks? That was God moving to do what he had to do in order for Revelation chapter 11 and verse 1 to be fulfilled. And that began a whole string of of modern miracles in that part of the world that you'll never hear about in the evening news or on CNN or, or read in any newspaper but folks the miracles that have been going on over there in the last 50 to 75 or 100 years are just as real as any miracle that you've ever read about in your Bible just as significant as any miracle you've ever read about for example we talked a little bit in the, the last couple of weeks about the the six-day war you see though Israel had taken or or, or had become a nation in 1948 they had not taken control over Jerusalem in in fact the Jews had not had sovereign control over the old city of Jerusalem for over 26 hundred years I mean we're dating back all the way to the time of Nebuchadnezzar they had not had control of the old city of Jerusalem but now listen If the prophecy of Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 would ever be fulfilled, Israel would not only have to become a nation, they would also have to take possession of Jerusalem so that they could take possession of the Temple Mount. And in June of 1967, now I want you to think with me right now. We're in June of 1998 right now. And in June of 1967, just 31 years ago, I was just a 10-year-old runt running around the streets of Miami at that period of time. And, and, and in fact, at, at this very time, right now, 31 years ago, the Six-Day War was being fought right now today, 31 years ago. The war began on June 5th, 1967. And what happened in that war... Is seven Arab nations had united against Israel now now check this out Israel if you read history and very few people ever do but if you read history what you're gonna find out most historians are gonna blame Israel for starting that war but what it was it was a a case of the, the bully who picks on the little little guy in the hall every day and takes pot shots at him all the time and, and finally the bully gets a, a, another group of bullies all around him and, and they're going to take on the little guy after school, okay? The little guy finds out about the, the bully's going to come after school and all of that so after school he walks out and there they are and he starts throwing the first punch and he wipes up the playground with the guys and then he gets called for starting the fight. You see, that's exactly what was going on in that six-day war. And the way, I mean, I'm telling you, if you go back and you read what was, what was really going on back there, it was just incredible. You see the hand of God moving to fulfill the prophecies that we see must be fulfilled here in Revelation chapter 11. It's just incredible. Let me just give you a few examples. Everybody knows that in military warfare, your, your strategy with an air force is to try to come in undetected above your enemy. Well, what the nation of Israel did in the six-day war is rather than come in above the enemy, they did something different. They came in under the radar, and they came in undetected, and they didn't try to get above that thing, but came under it, and check it out. Within the, the first 12 hours of that war... Before their enemies could even get their planes off of the ground, Israel had already destroyed 90% of the enemy aircraft. The other 10%, they couldn't get off of the ground because Israel had destroyed the airstrips. And there's all kinds of incredible stories that I'm telling you. One of these days, it, you ought to just find you some, some material in that six-day war and, and, and read about it. In just about every town that you'll you'll go to in the modern state of of Israel, there's a name that you're going to see that's on the streets of just about every single one of those towns. The name is Eli Cohen Boulevard, Eli Eli Cohen Road, whatever. Eli Cohen, Eli Cohen. Anybody ever hear of Eli Cohen? Okay, a, a couple of you. Eli Cohen was a spy in Israeli intelligence he had disguised himself for a period of 18 years as a, a furniture tycoon in Paraguay, South America. And he comes from Paraguay to Damascus, Syria, and he becomes friends with all of the yuppity yups in the Syrian army. And, and through his relationship with the, these guys, you know, they take him out to the various fields and so forth. They, they take him up. To the Golan Heights, which was a, a military fortification for the, the Syrians, where they would be above the, the enemy down in the Jordan, or the, the Jews down in the Jordan Valley, and, and they would just take pot shots at them and just mercilessly kill the, these Jews, and, and finally, Eli Cohen says, after seeing all of this stuff, and of course being a Jew himself, he says, you know, you guys are, man, you guys are animals. And the Syrians said, what, what, what are you talking about? He says, well, you, you're just so, you're so cold-blooded to your soldiers. I mean, you don't, you don't watch out for them. You don't, you don't take care of your soldiers. They said, what, what are you talking about? He says, well, have you checked it out? You, you, don't have any, you don't have any shade up here for your troops. These guys are about to cook out there in this, this land. And they said, well, check it out, homie. I mean, we're, we're talking about desert land here. Nothing grows out in the desert you know and he says hey, come on man check out the jews they've got eucalyptus trees absolutely everywhere the syrians said you know you're right man you know what that's a, that's a great idea and what they did is they planted eucalyptus trees next to all of their military fortifications when the six-day war began Eli Cohen wires back to Tel Aviv and tells them bomb eucalyptus
1: trees
0: (laughs) and the Syrians can't figure out why the Israeli bombs hit every target and why they wiped out just about every military fortification that that they had finally it dawned on them and they got a hold of Eli Cohen and you can you can read the story mercilessly slaughtered Eli Cohen. He's put to death and that's why he's memorialized all over Israel today. But Syria had their tanks. In fact, they had 2,700 of them. Now, on the northern borders, check this out, the nation of Israel has got 26 tanks. They're outnumbered 100 to one. I mean, folks, listen, it's just absolutely hopeless. But the military commander of the, the the tank brigade in the north remembered the story that we we saw just several weeks ago on, on Sunday night. We're studying through the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 7, just a couple of weeks ago, we went through the, the story of, of Gideon and his 300 men. And if you're not familiar with the story, then start coming on Sunday nights, and and I'll try to, to fill in the gaps here, okay? Here's Gideon, and he's got 300 men, and these 300 men defeated an army of 100,000 Midianites. And, and this little group of 300, the reason that they won, of course, is because they had these incredibly intimidating weapons, like trumpets and these clay pitchers and a lamp. I mean, that's pretty intimidating. But you see, in those days, every 1,000 soldiers had one trumpeter and one lamp bearer. And so what God does is he, he tells Gideon to give all of his 300 men a trumpet and every single one of the men a pitcher that would have a lamp inside And God tells Gideon, what I want you to do is I want you to surround the Midianite camp. And he says, when Gideon blows his trumpet, it'll be the signal for everybody else all the way around the camp to blow their trumpet. And when you blow the trumpet in one hand, break the pitcher on the other hand so that the lamp is there. And so you see when the Midianites woke up and they hear the 300 trumpet blasts and they look all around them and they see these 300 lamps, they think that they've been surrounded by... 300,000 Jews rather than 300 they think that they're outmanned 300 to 1 when actually Israel is outmanned 300 to 1 and in, you can check it out in Judges chapter 7 in all of the chaos and all the panic and all the fear the Midianites wind up killing one another and themselves and Gideon's army wins the battle you know, anyway, we read that in a nice little story, and uh, yeah, I guess that could have happened then because people were so stupid, you know, back then. And, and that makes for a nice little story for the children to learn about and to put on the fl- flannel graph. But in 1967, the military commander of the tank brigade, he remembers this little story back there of, of, of Gideon in the Bible, and he knows that the Soviets are intercepting his radio communications with those measly little 26 tanks that are out there. He knows that they're tapping in on this thing. So he begins to speak to each one of these men in the tanks as if they were a brigade of 100 tanks. Moscow gets a hold of this. They send message to the Syrians. The Syrians retreat believing that they've got 2,600 tanks out there on the northern border alone when in reality they had 26 tanks. Now, folks, that wasn't 3,100 years ago in Gideon's day. It was 31 years ago. That miracle took place 31 years ago. And you can check it out, and I won't go into, you know, ten trillion stories but you can also check out the, the, the stories about the Egyptians and with their tanks and all of that here they again they've got the the Israeli army totally out tanked and they get out of their tanks and surrender you know why well that's, that's what their army wanted to their, their commanders wanted to know they said we saw angels on their tanks and we thought who are we to fight with God Our lifetime, folks, we're not talking about, you know, 3,000 years ago. We're talking about stuff happening in our lifetime. But by the time the Six-Day War was over, Israel had taken control of five pieces of real estate. The Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, they took Sinai, they took the West Bank. But most importantly, listen, they took Jerusalem. You know why they took Jerusalem? Jerusalem. Because God's going to make sure that there's a temple that's sitting on that holy mount, that temple mount in Jerusalem. But like we talked about last week, you know, just because Israel has taken possession of Jerusalem, you know, it's not as easy as just climbing up on the, on the temple mount, you know, some afternoon and, and having a groundbreaking ceremony to get the temple up and running because there's a major problem that they're facing over right now. The Muslims' second most holy shrine is sitting on the top of that temple mount and with one out of every five people on this planet right now a muslim and islam being the fastest growing religion in the world it's not like israel is going to just come along one day and say hey move over Rova," because Israel's going to take over it's not going to happen folks and that's you see, and and that's why though israel actually has taken possession of the temple mount they've allowed that dome to stay there because they know the the absolute havoc that it's going to cause and so what they've done is they've allowed the Muslims to retain a a a guardianship role over the temple mount itself though they actually the Israel has possession of it okay and though as we saw last week the plans for the temple have already been drawn up though they already have the, the huge cornerstone that's already carved out and ready though the the priests are presently right now being trained in the levitical priesthood though the priestly garments are right now being made though the the golden crown that the high priest will wear along with his breastplate has already been made though everything is moving to get that temple back on that mount it still doesn't resolve the the problem that the dome of the rock that holy muslim shrine is still sitting on the temple mount you see that's no doubt gonna be a part of the peace treaty that daniel 9 27 says that the antichrist is going to sign with the nation of israel at the beginning of the tribulation period in in return for certain concessions from the jews the antichrist is going to guarantee protection for the jews So that they can rebuild their temple and so that they can begin the animal sacrifice. Now now somehow the the Antichrist is going to so schmooze a a, a deal that everybody involved is going to be grinning. And Israel is anxiously going to get their name on the dotted line so that after all of these years they can finally have peace. and So that they can finally rebuild their temple. But Isaiah chapter 28 verses 15 to 18 says that this is going to be, this this treaty that they're going to sign with the Antichrist, it is going to be the peace treaty from hell. They'll be signing their own death certificate. And God tells them that they're, they're making lies their refuge. Listen to what He says in Isaiah 28 and verse 18. He says, And your covenant, or your treaty, and your covenant with death, shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. Of course, we know what God's talking about when he talks about, the. look at the verse there, the overflowing scourge passing through, and he says, and then ye shall be trodden down by it, because now listen, at the midway point, of the, tri- uh, of the tribulation period Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 says in Matthew 24 verse 15 says second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 says that the Antichrist is gonna parade his egotistical behind into that temple he's gonna sit down on the throne he's gonna proclaim that he is to be worshiped because he is God in event that Daniel and Jesus and Paul all three of them refer to as the abomination of desolation and at that point in the tribulation period the covenant this peace treaty is broken and just like it says here in Isaiah 28 verse 18 the Jews will be trodden down and guess what it's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ tells John right here in Revelation chapter 11 at the end of verse 2 would you look at it he says and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. That's that last three and a half years of the tribulation after the Antichrist has committed the abomination of desolation. Now, folks, now listen. That's the reason that the Lord Jesus Christ tells John here that as he's measuring the temple, look at verse 2 again. He says, but the court, which is without or outside the temple, leave out, don't measure it, measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. Okay, now, now, now listen. Obviously, I, I, I don't have any idea exactly how the Antichrist is going to pull off this whole treaty gig that's going to be, you know, satisfactory to both the Jews and the Arabs, and that's going to resolve this problem with the dome of the rock being in the exact location where the, the temple needs to be rebuilt. But let me share with you some some recent archaeological discoveries that have a major bearing on what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 11. Now, now listen, for 13 centuries on this planet, now, I mean, since 691 AD when they built the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount that's how far the thing goes back 691 AD and for the last 13 centuries it has been believed that that Dome of the Rock was built directly over the site of the original uh, 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 the original temple way back in Solomon's day and specifically over the Holy of Holies but some of the archaeological digs since Israel has come back in 1967 have led many archaeologists and and those who have given their lives to study the the holy mount it's led many of them to believe that the temple that was originally built by King Solomon actually stood now listen to it that that temple actually stood to the north of the present-day dome of the rock and that actually the holy of holies in solomon's temple was located 322 feet north of the dome of the rock now now check this out if that in fact is where it was located do you realize where that places the dome of the rock on the temple mount it places it right smack dab in the middle of where the court of the Gentiles would have been located in Solomon's temple. And if that be the case, look at what our Lord told John in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 2 with that in mind. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles could it be that John was told not to measure the court of the Gentiles in the middle of the tribulation period because, of the, because the Dome of the Rock is still going to be sitting in it? Now, it's hard for us to imagine a scenario right now where, where the, the Muslims would, would be okay with the, the Jews building their temple anywhere even close to the Dome of the Rock. It's hard for us, on the other hand, to imagine a scenario where the Jews would want that sorry, lousy, no good thing in their estimation to be sitting anywhere close to their temple. But now listen, don't forget that after the rapture takes place, which, and this is when all of this stuff is going to take place, that after the rapture takes place, the world is going to be in such upheaval and confusion and and panic. And when listen, when the Antichrist comes on the scene with all of his miraculous demonstration of power and with his answers to to all of the the political and and financial and and spiritual needs of the people, you know what? It's really hard to say what kind of concessions the Jews and the Arabs and, and all the other people of this planet are going to be willing to make. So it could very well be... That that Dome of the Rock may still be sitting there if what archaeology has, has recently discovered is in fact the truth. But we do know this. Now listen, whether the Dome of the Rock is there or not, the temple is going to be built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And if you're wondering, all of history right now is moving to that event. And when you turn on CNN and you see everything that's going on and this big controversy about the land and giving back this and doing all of that, folks, listen. Wake up and and, and get biblically oriented. Wake up. All of that is happening right now before our very eyes moving to the very events that we're talking about. There's going to be a temple sitting there and all of these things are playing into it. But this temple is going to be rebuilt shortly after the rapture. And for approximately three years, the animal sacrifices, according to Daniel 9.27, are once again going to be carried out by the Jewish priesthood. And let me tell you something. The Jews at this period of time, in the first part of the tribulation, they are going to think that they died and went to heaven. But at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist comes in, he does his thing in the temple. From that point on, just like the end of verse 2 says, the Gentiles under the direction of the Antichrist will tread the holy city under their feet for the final 42 months of the tribulation period. Now, again, whether the door of the rock is going to be on the Temple Mount during that time, no one can say for sure, but verse 2 leads us to believe that for some reason the Lord Jesus Christ didn't want John to include the court of the Gentiles into his measurements, which brings up... Uh, A very important point and that is what's up with this whole measuring thing that our Lord asked John to do here in verse 1 in the first place John says in in verse 1 look at it again and there was given me a reed like unto a rod okay we, we would call it today a a measuring stick okay and the angel stood saying rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, what's that all about? Well, what's helpful is that we do have some other places in the Word of God where we see certain people taking measurements of certain things uh, in, in several different locations. Now, we're not going to, for time's sake this morning, we're not going to take the time to, to go to all of these, these places, but in Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel is witnessing a very similar event where the millennial temple, is being measured with a reed Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 5 even tells us exactly how big this reed is now John's got a reed that he's gonna measure with Ezekiel sees a guy with a reed and God even tells us the size of the reed he tells us that it was six cubits long and a cubit was basically the the distance from a a man's uh, elbow to the to the tip of his finger approximately at 18 inches so the reed if it was six cubits was approximately nine feet long but what what he sees here in ezekiel 40 is the millennial temple is being measured and then you see this this measuring thing again in the book of zechariah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 and in zechariah 2 1 through 5 jerusalem is being measured And then we're going to run into this this whole measuring thing again in our study of the book of Revelation in chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, where the new Jerusalem is being measured. And what you begin to find as you compare Scripture with Scripture and you begin to look at all of these different things is that when God takes measurements of something, it's not so that he can find out the dimensions of it. It's not God up in heaven saying, you know what, I wonder how big that thing is. Man, I'd love to find out. God is not interested in finding out the dimensions of it. It's being measured. Listen, to symbolize a spiritual evaluation, and this is so important that you see this if you're going to understand the prophecies of the end times, folks. Now, we, we've talked this morning, just as we we have over the past several weeks, about the absolute incredible miracles that God has performed on the Jews' behalf in the last hundred years or so, but what is just so amazing is in spite of all of these miracles that have taken place for the Jews and getting them back into the homeland, taking possession of the, uh, the Jerusalem and all of those things, the Six-Day War, in spite of all of these miracles, for the most part, the Jews have said, look what we have done. And now understand... This, this whole groundswell on the part of the Jews to rebuild the temple is not coming first and foremost because of their faith in God. It's coming because of their faith in Israel. Now, there's obviously a number of Orthodox Jews who hold to the Word of God and to the strict Mosaic tradition, but for the most part... Israel today is made up of Jews who are agnostic as far as their relationship with God is concerned. So understand, the temple is going to be rebuilt, but it's not going to be because of a recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. It's not going to be rebuilt for the purpose of bringing about a spiritual revival. It's going to be brought about and rebuilt as part of a cultural and nationalistic revival. And you see, that's why our Lord wants John to measure it. He wants John to give a spiritual evaluation of it. And you know why he wanted John to do that? So that we come along in 1998 as we're studying the book of Revelation, and we'd see this temple that's going to be rebuilt on that mount, and so that we might take the time to measure this tribulation temple ourselves, and give it a spiritual evaluation by comparing Scripture with Scripture, and as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, to find out of what sort it is. And by doing that this morning, we, we see that this temple really has nothing whatsoever to do with God. It has everything to do with Israel. It has everything to do with prophecies being fulfilled in the tribulation period by the Antichrist. And what we're going to find out as we come out of verses 1 and 2 in this chapter, as we begin to talk about the, the two witnesses that stand up in the tribulation period, and what we're going to find is these guys stand up, and man, they are just preaching up a storm. And you can bet that one of the, the key reasons that they are so hated on this planet, we're going to find out in Revelation chapter 11, that these two guys, as they're preaching throughout Jerusalem, are so hated that they actually... End up chopping their heads off and leaving them laying in the street for a period of three and a half days. They don't—I mean—and people are filing by and just rejoicing over the fact that these suckers are finally dead. And you know why they're going to be so ticked off at them? I, I believe one of the, the the reasons is these guys and they're preaching. They're they're going to be pointing to this this temple in Jerusalem and they're going to be hammering the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled in his first coming all the things that they've filled that temple with, that the Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of those things, and that this magnificent structure that they built on the Temple Mount is nothing but a a, a sham to God that has no spiritual significance to God any more than the White House in Washington, D.C. would have. And it's going to tick the people off because this is going to be their deal. we finally arrived as a nation because we've got our temple back, buddy, and we're doing these Sacrifices. You see, that's what's going on here in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And you know what? That's all, you know, that, that's, that's all well and good, isn't it? And it's all just real neat stuff to learn and it's, it's kind of neat to, to see how the prophecies of the Bible are being filled right before our very eyes and, and all of this stuff tends to satisfy our intellectual curiosities and all of that. But folks, listen. Please do not miss the practical picture that
1: all of this paints for us. You see,
0: now listen, as believers in Jesus Christ in the church age, we have no
1: temple where we go to worship God. Why? Somebody raise your hand and tell me why. Yeah. Exactly. Did you hear what she said? We are the temple. We are the temple. Paul asked in
0: 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, Know ye not that ye, believers in Jesus Christ, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? He asked again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? He said it again in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 16, For ye are the temple of the living God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Paul said that as believers in Jesus Christ, he says that we are a building fitly framed together as an holy temple in the Lord. And he, he says, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Peter said in first Peter chapter two and verse five that as believers in Christ, we're really nothing more than living stones that are built into a spiritual house where we as holy priests Offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Again, you can't miss the fact that there have been some temples, and we spent all last week just going through all of the various temples down through the centuries, and we're, we're looking at, at what John has been commanded to do here. And folks, now listen, I promise you that if the Lord Jesus Christ wanted John in verse 1 to take God's divine rule of measurement out of his hand and have John go and measure the tribulation temple to determine its spiritual condition. And if Ezekiel sees the man who had been given God's divine rule of measurement and he's measuring the millennial temple to prove its spiritual condition, then I promise you this morning
1: that the Holy Spirit of God is holding His divine rule of measurement next to every single person in this room this morning to evaluate the spiritual condition of His temple that we call our body. You know what? Every single day of our lives, folks, as believers in Christ, the divine measuring rod that we call the Word of God is laid next to us to determine the spiritual condition of the temple. Last week, during the Sunday school hour, we, we had communion. You know what the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? That before we come to that event were to lay our lines next to the measuring rod of God to see the spiritual condition of the temple. To be quite honest with you, we got to the point where we ran out of time last week. During communion, we had to get into the morning service. and guests were bottled up in, in the foyer. But I'll just tell you, I felt like we needed to take a little more time as a church. We needed to take a little more time as individuals to just slow down and recognize the fact that we come far short of God's standard, of His divine rule. It's true of us as a church the reason it's true of us as a church is because it's so true so many of us as individuals and man I believe that this is this is so significant to God in fact what he tells us before we come to that communion table, that we so better lay our lives next to the standard. Because he says, if you partake of that bread and of that cup, and you have not dealt with your lacking spiritual condition, he says that for that cause, there are many who will be sick, many who will even die. John is told, Take the divine measuring rod and, and measure the temple, but don't just measure the temple. Measure the altar. And measure them that worship. God. And the truth is this morning, folks, that some of you are just like that tribulation temple. All of the form is there. You do all the all the little Christianity things. You know how to dress. You know where to say amen. You know how to respond. But your whole Christian life really isn't a matter of a relationship with God. For many of you, this is just. A, a real nice lifestyle that you've chosen to bring your kids up in. This is a good way to keep them out of the back seat of the car. Keep them off drugs. This is nice. And we have our daily time at the table where we thank God for our food. But some of you, though know, you've been members of this church for years and years and years, you're a sham of a temple. The Spirit of God does not live inside of you. You've got churchianity, not Christianity. Others of us, we are a bona fide temple. There was a day. When the Lord Jesus Christ came into our life and took up residence by His Spirit within us, we've defiled His temple. As we lay our lives next to the divine measuring rod of God, we come up so lacking, we confuse ourselves because we come into a church like this and we hear all the teaching of the Word of God and we're learning facts and we're learning prophecies and we're, oh, wow. But when it comes to the actual living of our lives, some of us are defiling the holy temple of God that has been become the habitation of God on this planet. Some of you, you allow bitterness to sit inside of the temple of God. And you just keep excusing it week after week and year after year. And there are people that some of them are even in this church that so piss you off that you can hardly stomach them. But somehow you've convinced yourself that that really doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God. And I'm telling you, the divine measuring lot of God says you are to root that out. Well, I'm fine with it. I just don't have much to do with them You know how you know when you're over bitterness, folks? Oh. When you can look back at the situation that caused you to be bitter with that person And you can thank God that it happened. So where do you get that? 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks. For This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Some of you defile your body because of the lustful thoughts that you allow to just Permeate your you being day after day after day, and you never do get it right. The measuring rod of God comes down and says, The temple of God comes far short of God's divine standard. And when folks, now listen, we could go through thing after thing after thing after thing. You don't need me to call you sin. Just telling you, God's serious about His temple. And God is constantly evaluating the spiritual quality of His temple. There's something that's going on in your life right now. I, I urge you to lay your life down next to that standard and confess as sin what God reveals to you and deal with that thing. For those of you that are here this morning, you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. I know how it goes. We go through life and we want to be a temple. We want to do all of the nice little religious things. We want to make sure that we're going to heaven. Listen, folks, the only way that you get there is by confessing that there's no way for you to get there. That you're an absolute sinner before God in desperate need of His forgiveness. And when you come to that place, believing that Jesus Christ is God, that He paid for your sin at that moment, when you call upon His name, you become the temple of the living God. And that can happen for, for you this morning. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of the worship center as we conclude this morning there to talk to any of you folks who have never entered into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ we'd love to answer your questions and talk to you we urge you to to talk to one of them others of you maybe you're you're dealing with, with, with something in your life that you maintain you can't get the victory over it you know what before you leave today why don't you just take some time talk to one of the pastors about that and, and let us begin to chart a course for you biblically to, to help you to weed out of the temple that which God does not want in there. Now, Lord, I, I pray this morning that you would help us to do the, the spiritual evaluation that we see that John was commanded to do with the temple that will be rebuilt on this planet in the very near future.